This is a download from the Wireless Theatre Company. Well, hello. Here today we have in the studio Mary Tam, and Mary Tam is famous for being the original Doctor Who girl, which is but one credit among her many other exciting television, film, and theatre credits. One of the most glamorous films she did was, of course, the marvelous Odessa File with John Voight. Now, Mary has written an extremely interesting book for all you fans out there, and it's called First Generation, which is the story of her life as a young girl from an immigrant family from Estonia who fled their troubled country to escape the incoming Russians. It is a warm, funny, and humanitarian book about Mary's early life in Bradford and her consequent rise to fame and fortune, and also, as importantly, her search for her roots, her true identity. And this surge takes her on a trip to Estonia, to the very place which her parents had left in such haste years before. So, hello, Mary. Hi, hi, Jenny. Nice to see you. Good, lovely to see you, Mary. Now, Mary, you grew up in Bradford, and tell me a little bit about your childhood. Well, growing up in Bradford in the fifties was um, well, it's a long time ago, obviously. And when I talk about it now to my daughter, you know, she thinks it's the Middle Ages because. Uh, I mentioned things like, you know, going to the fish and chip shop on the corner and, you know, the cost of things and walking to school. And to her, it's inconceivable that anybody would walk anywhere because, you know, nowadays kids are so spoilt and they've got their internet, they've got their iPads and iPhones. And we didn't have any of that. We didn't even have a telephone when I was growing up. So we didn't have a car. And、um, I often talk about that sort of childhood now to friends and how different. Kids are now, and what they have, and what privileges they take for granted, really. So, I touch on a lot of these issues in the book. And、um, the fifties, you know, up in Bradford, where I was raised, was quite、uh, patriarchal in the sense that Yorkshire people don't take to outsiders very easily, and it's even worse when they're foreign and they talk with foreign accents. And I remember coming home from school with a friend, and then. I'd see the girl looking horrified, and I'd say, "Oh, what's wrong?" She said, "Oh, your parents talk funny, don't they?" And next day she'd go back to school and say, "Oh, Mary's parents talk funny, and they eat funny food." You know, so it was all a bit—it was all a bit traumatic for me because I realised at a very early age that I was different, and like all children, I wanted to conform, and I didn't like it. And、um, when I went to visit Estonia finally, it was quite cathartic because.、Um, I heard suddenly people talking Estonian, and they were seemed to be quite normal people. And I realised that the difference that I'd imagined wasn't as great as I thought it was. But that, that's all in the book as well. So、um, yeah, that that kind of background propelled me into, I suppose,、um, trying to make a success of my life quite strongly. And I think、um, most actors have this difference because I mean your background, as I know, was was different to most people's, and、uh, we both have that、uh, link in that we come from a background that's not very conventional, and therefore, I don't know whether that somehow wants, you know, makes you want to be different, want to express yourself in a different way. And actors, a lot of actors have that, don't they? They have that slight, but then. I don't know. A lot of people have difficult backgrounds and aren't necessarily actors, but maybe that's where they've gone wrong. They should have all been actors, Jenny. Got it all out of their systems. <laughs> and then you came down and you went to Rada, which is a fabulous place to go. Can you tell me a little bit about Rada? Yeah, I mean, obviously it was a it was a big dream to go there, and I was completely over the moon. You know, when I when I got in, I never really expected to get in, but I suppose 
you know, they go for different types and they get so many people with dark hair, so many people with blue eyes. I didn't realise this at the time, but it's very much cast on physical or rather determined by physical attributes. And uh, that was a wonderful time because it was a very intense training and it was everything that I'd imagined and more. I know that a lot of my friends who went there were still in touch, actually. A group of about six or seven of us are still in touch after all this time. And um, some of them were quite disappointed by the RADA experience, but I loved every minute of it and really, really enjoyed myself. Hard work. And they were very cruel to you. They kind of tore you apart, you know, to... They, they dragged you down to build you up again, and quite a few people didn't survive the training. They either left or, you know, dropped out or whatever. So um, I think it was probably one of the happiest times of my life because the, the work was hard, but I loved it. Just loved every minute of it. Yes, but it is often very happy when you're young and training and yeah, the sky's no the limit, isn't it? No yeah. responsibilities. So when did you first get the desire to go back to Estonia, your, your sort of country of your forefathers? Well, obviously my parents had talked about Estonia a lot and um, I didn't particularly have a desire to go back, but I think it was when my mother died uh, during her lifetime, she hadn't been allowed to go back because her parents were, well, rather her father was a white Russian, which meant that he fought against com- communism. And um, his name was actually, you know, down on a list, and therefore her name was on a list, and she was very, very worried that my name would be on the list as well. And she had this awful, awful fear that if I went to Estonia, I'd be imprisoned and I'd never come back. So she kind of instilled that fear in me, and I... I knew it wasn't really true, but I didn't want to worry her. So when she died, I decided to go along, and um, I planned this little pilgrimage in her honour. But it was actually quite fascinating, and um, a lot of people have said that the chapters that I've written about Estonia are the heart of the book, because, of course, it's very personal. And when I was there, I kept a diary. Mm. And um, it took me 20 years to write the book, but when I look back on the diary, I just wrote it up exactly as I'd written it, and it, you know, I thought, oh, this is rubbish really (laughs) but everybody's loved that part of the book the most so um it was quite interesting and it's it's doubly interesting for me to know that i've now committed it to print because it's like a kind of a tribute to my parents and ancestors and all the all the hardship they suffered so i'm quite proud of that really well i particularly enjoyed the sections about um uh Estonia. I thought it was, um, you made it into a sort of mixture of an unspoilt utopian paradise and a country that's still suffering from the effects of a communist regime. Um, what kind of an impact did it have on you when you first arrived there? I know you mentioned, you've already mentioned about how when you're on the boat crossing over to Estonia, you hear people speaking Estonia around you and you suddenly feel at home. What else sort of happened that made that same feeling occur? Yes, that, that was very weird because, um, as I said before, I'd felt very different in Bradford because I didn't hear Estonian spoken much apart from when we went to the Estonian club at weekends but to hear everybody speaking it made me feel as though I knew everybody you know I sort of approach people and start talking in Estonian just to get a response back in Estonian and um, that was I think that was the strongest impression and then when I landed of course um, the country itself was so familiar because of all the photographs I'd seen. I mean, the scenery is very like England. The plants and trees are the same, and the colours of the greens are the same, you know, because some countries you go to, and the, the greens that you see, like when I went to Sri Lanka, the greens are quite dark. So it was quite interesting to see a familiar landscape and all the pictures that my parents had had of the towns, you know, and all the buildings were very familiar. So that was, that was a big impact. And, of course, meeting, meeting the family, an impact which wasn't, 
quite so pleasant was seeing all those horrible buildings that the communists threw up, you know, the blocks of flats, which are just like grey, you know, boxes. And um, unfortunately, my poor cousin and his family lived in one of these boxes in a two-bedroom flat, five of them, you know, in a, in, in a space that really was just enough for um, one person, if we're thinking about English standards. But... Things like that, yes, I did, I did put down in my diary and consequently in the book, and um, every, every day there really was a revelation. So, um, I don't know. I can't specifically say that any one thing was, was revelatory, but uh, as I say in the book, it's, it's all explained, you know, in a, in a way that's day-to-day. Yes. Um, now, I know from some of the photographs in your book that one of your cousins from Estonia... I think he's called John, double A-N. He looks remarkably like you. Now, what sort of feeling did this cause in you, seeing someone who looks so like you, and yet who's a total stranger and coming from a totally different sort of background to you? Yeah, that was weird. Um, in fact, I had met Jan before. Oh. It's pronounced Ja rather than Ja, because oh. we don't, they don't say that sound in Estonian, because I'd met him in, in England. He travelled to England um, a couple of times before I met him, and... Uh, it was weird because he looked exactly like my father as a young man, so it was it was quite a jolt to see him because I thought, my God, that looks just like my dad, you know. But obviously much younger and um, thinner, a little bit thinner than my dad. And my dad was still alive then because he'd, um, he'd never gone back either. And um, when he went to Estonia again after 50 years' absence, that was a huge emotional experience for him. And I'm sorry I couldn't go with him, but in fact he, he did say he didn't want anybody to go with him. He wanted to experience it on his own. And I can understand why, because I was on my own and there were so many people to meet, you know, so many cousins and second cousins and uncles and aunts and people I didn't even know existed really. I suppose I'd heard them being spoken about, but I didn't take much notice. So that was that was also quite extraordinary to meet all these people that I'm related to and know that I've got a big family out there. Now, tell me a question for all your fans out there. Tell me about your role as the wonderful Romana in Doctor Who. Well, before I answer that question, um, I'd like to actually make a tribute to Elizabeth Sladen, who died this week. She was the companion with Tom Baker before Louise Jameson, who was before me, and, of course, I knew her very well. And I'd just like to say how much you'll be missed and um, what a wonderful actress she was. So goodbye, Liz. You were a great friend and um, condolences to the family. Yes, and I'm sure she'll be happy where she is now. Tell me about how your role and how, how you came to get it. Well, originally I, um, I did a screen test with six other girls and I was picked from those six girls. And um, I wasn't very keen on the idea of doing this part in Doctor Who because from what I'd seen of the series they all turned out to be screaming sidekicks you know but what attracted me about um, the character of Romana was the fact that she was a time lady mm. which gave her great status mm. you see and um, she was meant to be on an equal par with the Doctor intellectually and she was to start with but um, of course over the course of the series um, the part deteriorated because um, it's a half hour format or it was then and um, in half an hour, you can't have two protagonists, you know, doing doing the same thing. So you've got to have one person who's doing it, the Doctor, and, you know, instigating action, and the other one, the companion, who kind of is a sounding board. So mm. after, um, I don't know, three or four stories, you know, 12 episodes, I realised that it wasn't really get going anywhere, the character. So 
I decided that I would leave by the end of the series. And I made my mind up then, even though the producer never really believed that I would leave and, and still didn't, even on the last studio day. So a lot of my fans have said, why did I leave? And that's why. And it, it is explained as well in, in the second book, yeah. You were supposed to be on the Clive James show and you turned that down, I believe. Oh, that's right, because <laughs> Clive James invited me on the show and I thought, oh, great, this is great going to be great, you know, I can yeah. talk about what I'm doing now. And all he wanted me to do was come on and scream. <laughs> so I said, I, I think there are some other companions who might be able to do that better than I, thank you. So I turned that down, and I thought that would be very demeaning and unflattering, do you know what I mean? I think it was demeaning of Clive James to ask you, but then I always think he was slightly misogynistic, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a bit of a chauvinist piglet, that one. Like him, I like him, but, you know. So tell me a little about those fabulous outfits that you wore. Yes, the first dress was stunning, and um, it was designed by Scylla Black's dressmaker, because Scylla Black used to do a lot of cabaret in those days. And she had her own TV show as well, of course, but um, the cabaret dresses were gorgeous, and um, this dress designer was absolutely amazing, and she made five outfits because they got dirty very quickly. And by the end of that particular story, they'd all disappeared. Wow. I know, I know. And I, well, them. yeah, I keep looking out for them on eBay, but uh, still haven't seen them for sale. Not that I'd buy mine back, but I wish I'd kept one. I wish I'd kept one, but there you go. Yeah, it'd be worth something now. Lovely souvenir. Now, which of the series did you like the best? Well, I think I liked um, the androids of Tara best because I was playing three characters. And um, my favourite outfit, which I helped design myself, was one that I wore during that. And also, we were filming at Leeds Castle in Kent, which is a beautiful old castle with, you know, moats and turrets and a real fairy tale place. And we were on location in the middle of the summer, and the weather was fantastic. So we'd all socialise every night and, you know, get up very early and film all day and then go out at night again. So it was like a kind of a holiday. And um, recently, when I was um, voicing the um, DVDs, which are now re-released, by the way, I, the, the key to time is on re-released now on DVD, little Great. plug there, little plug there. Tell them where they can get it. Oh, yes, well, it's, um, well you can get it via the BBC okay. website, bbc.co.uk. And, um, yes, when I was uh, doing those and watching back all those episodes I'd made all those years ago, of course, I, I thought that um, the atmosphere on that story was one of the best because mm-hmm. you could tell we'd all had a lovely time, you know. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was great, yeah. And how was it working with Tom Baker? I know, I know you're keeping a lot of anecdotes for your second book. You've got a second book called Second Generation, I believe. But can you share a little something with us now? Well, yes. I mean, the, the anecdotes um, are not just about Tom, but um, I did have a very funny, well, funny, strange morning with him because um, shortly after the screen test, um, having heard I'd got the part, he rang me up and asked me out for a drink. And um, at that time, he was living in Soho, just around the corner from the coaches, the Coach and Horses, which is where Geoffrey Barnard yes. used to hang out, you know, and all the staff from Private Eye use it as a kind of an office. And um, unfortunately, I got up that morning with the most crippling migraine, and I thought, oh, dear, I, I daren't cancel it, you know, because it's Tom Baker, you know, I'm having a drink with Tom Baker. So I jumped into my little mini, and I went down there to meet him, and... Um, I was very dull because I really couldn't face any alcohol. And, of course, Tom likes a drink. Oh, he did like a drink then. I don't know if he still likes a drink now. And uh, he was staring at me in great puzzlement, thinking, God, she's a bit boring. And then uh, he suggested we go for lunch. And I thought, oh, no, I can't face lunch when I'm feeling this ill. So I made an excuse and ran off. And 
I did feel awful, but uh, he must have thought, gosh, it's, it's going to be awful working with this woman for nine months. You know, <laughs> she's obviously the most boring woman that ever lived, but I did make up for it, Jenny. Yeah, I did make I'm up sure for it. you did, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and going on to the other part of the question about the anecdotes, I... Um, oh, that was the anecdote. That yes, was <laughs> that was it, and a very good <laughs> anecdote it was, too. So tell me about your second book. When's that coming out? Oh, that's, that's what I was going to say. You see, I, I knew there was something on my mind. Yeah, the second book has got many other anecdotes, much more than the first. I mean, the first one was kind of more factual, but the second one's very gossipy, and um, there's stuff in it which people don't know, you know, has never been talked about, never been read about before. So it's quite um, controversial in places, and um, that's called second generation because um, my daughter was born, so she's the second generation Estonian because mm -hmm. I was the first, and so I'm hoping there's enough uh, mileage for third generation as well, because well, yes. <laughs> my grandsons are now third generation English, you know, from an Estonian background, but... He's got much more English blood, of course, because his his dad's yeah. English and everything. So yeah, oh, well, I look forward to seeing that and reading that. Now, when you left the series, you um, went on to make a film in Sri Lanka called Rampage, which became a huge cult film. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, yes, that was an interesting experience. Um, I was there for about three months, and I was filming with um, a very famous Sri Lankan film star called Garmini Fonseca. And filming in Sri Lanka at that time was very like, um, you know, the Indian mm. film industry where they were all making masses and masses of films. And um, he was actually filming two other films while he was doing our film. So he'd stop off after a scene that he was doing with us. And then all these technicians would rush up and build a set around him and all these dancing girls and musicians would appear and he'd start singing and dancing and playing the guitar and singing away, you know, like a trooper and then come back to our film. I mean... It was fascinating because it was like a sort of daily entertainment, but quite boring at, at the end of the day because you always had to wait around. You know, it's like that yeah. film we did in Greece together that we talked about earlier. Remember, yeah, the, the, the doubt that uh, <laughs> we spent every day hanging around. Well, this was a bit similar, Jenny. It was very similar in that there was a lot of hanging around and not a lot of filming. But we did spend a lot of time hanging around the beach, didn't we? Yeah. I mean, it was a bit, bit different. Yeah, so but we didn't get paid, did we? No, we didn't get. I didn't get paid much for this film, actually. I think I think I gave all my pay away because it was so distressing being in yeah. Sri Lanka. I mean, it was literally peanuts that I got paid for. It. I don't know why I did it actually. I think my agent kind of pushed me into it at the time. But anyway, I never saw it. Never saw it. Never saw it. But it, but it must have been interesting being in Sri Lanka. And you were out there about three months, I think, according to your book, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. Well, um, it was a big hit out there, of course, because of Garmini, because he's like he was like their number one matinee idol and. Wherever we went, crowds and crowds of people would turn up, and he had this great big limousine, but it was open-topped, and he used to stand in the back like royalty, you know, and wave, wave to all these fans, you know. Oh, they loved him, and they'd be throwing flowers, and oh, it was just, it was just brilliant. You said it's sort of a very sort of psychic place, Sri Lanka. I mean, you said lots of sort of strange sort of coincidences happen to you when you're out there. Uh, can you remember anything offhand? Well, yes, I, I did have some odd experiences. I mean, I came back from Sri Lanka at a very traumatic time in their history because politically um, there was a lot of opposition to the Prime Minister, Bandra Naika, who was quite corrupt, and the Tamils were, up, were rising. You know, they were having an uprising, and it was quite scary because uh, we lived under curfew, and I had to bribe somebody to get back, and I went back covered with this horrible rash, and then one night I woke up screaming in the middle of the night, and the rash had disappeared, and apparently there'd been a plane crash over Sri Lanka and I think kind of like there was a spiritual connection that I'd had with the place and after that my rash disappeared so 
I've never quite um, got to the bottom of it, but it was quite interesting at the time, you know. So there's, you know, more to that place than one thinks. In fact, Shakespeare based Sri Lanka, um, <laughs> based the Tempest, the Tempest yes. on Sri Lanka, the island in the Tempest. Mm. People now think was Sri Lanka because it's so mystical, you know. Mm. Well, would he have travelled to Sri Lanka? No, he wouldn't have done. He would have just heard about it, wouldn't he? Well. Yes, I suppose you would have heard about it, but there were so many voyagers in that time, you know, so many travellers and explorers that he probably would have heard about it and written about it, you know, secondhand, which, you know, that's what writers do, isn't it? Yeah. They don't have to experience everything firsthand, I guess. Yeah. And we did a play together with uh, Delphine Seary called uh, Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. You write very amusingly about that in your book as well. Um, and Angela Presence, can you remember? I remember how she used to upstage everybody. Can you remember any stories about that? <laughs> She did use to upstages, didn't she? Up but uh, but she was she was she was extraordinary because she didn't have any lines. No. It was all mime, wasn't it? And uh, yes, I do remember the funniest part of her performance was when she produced a birthday cake because it was the main character's birthday, and you and I were guests at the it, table, and yeah. there was four of us there, I think. And she cut it in the most extraordinary way. She didn't cut it from the middle outwards. She did a sort of zigzag. It was like a kind of geometric um, mathematical. <laughs> <laughs> or something, and then she, we were all staring at it in fascination. But she did cut it into equal sized pieces in the end. She was brilliant, really, because I remember I had the scene. I was doing the sort of dialogue thing down the front of the stage with with I think Delphine, and it was all very dramatic. And the audience kept tittering. I kept thinking, "What's happening?" And it was Angela behind us, in acting as the maid, and um, doing all sorts of things. What was she doing? I don't know. Just looking at us in a funny way or something. <laughs> She was quite a cat. Well, of course, she's um, Donald Pleasance's daughter, isn't yeah. she? And, and she doesn't. I haven't seen her much anymore. I used to do a lot of work at RADA with the students, mm. and when I went to the um, meetings there, she'd she'd turn up, and she'd still be the same. But um, I think that was quite a, a pinnacle for us that play because it was quite prestigious, wasn't it? Do you remember David Hockney came to see yeah. it one night, and they extended the run because at one point um, it was that very very hot summer, and we're all dripping with perspiration every night and everybody in the audience was fanning themselves and rustling and <laughs> stamping their feet you know because it was so hot yeah. it was so hot but uh, we we plowed on didn't we, we like troopers on. yeah we plowed on. you've had and you still have a most remarkable life and career have you got any tips that you would give for any would-be young thespians out there now starting off well, that's a difficult one. I mean, the main thing is, it's like um, the very famous actor Richard Bryars once said to a young student, if you really, 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 really want to be an actor, don't do it. You have to, have to do it. Yeah. And the difference is, oh, yeah, I fancy a nice little career in acting, or you're burning up with the ambition to do the work, not not necessarily be famous or you know be seen on television, but to do the work, and and that brings me to the point of of how the business is nowadays. It's all to do with fame, yeah. and it's to do with you know a fast buck yeah. or getting into the profession quickly, like through these reality shows. I'm not saying it's all like that, but since the decline of the repertory theatres, where traditionally you know young actors started, I think it's very difficult for people to get a foot on the ladder nowadays. Yeah. Extremely difficult. So. My advice would be, really, to have a second string to your bow. You know, do something totally different. Do, uh, I don't know, set up your own little theatre company or set up a little, I don't know, 
production company, which you need backing for, obviously. But but these things can be done reasonably cheaply these days, yeah. especially with equipment being so cheap. Yes, they can be. They can be. I mean, it sounds daunting, but um, I think even even if you just get a job working in a shop or something, that you have a sideline, you have an income, because life's so expensive now. I mean, when we started all those years ago, you know, we didn't have all the stuff they have now. Nobody had a mobile phone. You yeah. We were on the internet. Mm-hmm. You didn't have your plasma screen TV. We didn't even watch TV in those days. Yeah. We were always out, you know, mm-hmm. discussing higher matters, Jenny, weren't we? Well, <laughs> we never watched any soap operas. Gosh, no. No, no, I'm just, I'm just joking, obviously. But um, nowadays, it seems to be the world's so materialistic, you know, and everybody wants to have stuff. Mm. Um you know, the, the thing is to concentrate on your art, but you, I don't think anybody can afford to nowadays. That's yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. That's the thing. It's very sad, but it's all changed. The world's changed, and therefore the business has changed. And now, with our recession and the cuts, I don't I don't know how people get into it. Really, I really don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't recommend. I mean, I would. Yeah, I would agree with you. If you if you're burning up to act, then obviously go ahead and do it. But do your own thing as well. Set it up yourself. Put on little fringe productions. Take things up to the Edinburgh Festival. That's the only way you can really do it. So you're going to take your book to the Literary Festival in Edinburgh this year? Well, if it's finished in time, I'm, I'm well into you know, 60,000 words now. Uh, I think it's going to be a bit longer than the last one. We are planning for a release date in September, but it depends on um, other commitments. And if we get to Edinburgh, that would be fantastic, because I was asked last year, but uh, well, not last year, actually, I think it was the year before. But um, we will be launching it, and there'll be news about all my work and the book on my website, which is marytam.com. And from there, you can you can find out about the Doctor Who conventions I'm doing, the book, other other projects, and um, the Big Finish stuff, which I do as well, which is the audio CDs. Because Big Finish kept Doctor Who going all that time it was off the air. That's how it became so popular and successful. And now it's just as popular, mm-hmm. funnily enough, because uh, people just you know don't seem to be able to get enough of Doctor Who. Well, good. Maybe we'll go out to the Edinburgh Festival, not this year, but next year. You will your book, and I'll take up some production. Anyway, Mary, thank you so much for coming into the the studios. Thank you very much.